and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast exploring the different things we hold sacred and how we might have better public conversations. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Michael Weir. Michael served in the White House Faith-Based Initiative during President Obama's first term and went on to direct the faith outreach for the 2012 re-election campaign. He now runs Public Square Strategies, LLP, frequently writes on the intersection of religion and politics for The Atlantic and USA Today, among others, and is the author of Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. I spoke to him about growing up Catholic in the industrial Midwest, his conversion to both evangelical Christianity and the Democratic Party, and his desire for us to find belonging and identity outside of politics. I hope you enjoy listening. Michael, thank you so much for swinging by today on your brief visit to London. And I'm going to kick off with the big chunky question that I ask everyone that you have had exactly a minute and a half to think about, which is what do you hold sacred? And this is a very comfortable term for some people, not at all for others. And I don't necessarily mean it in an explicitly religious sense. I mean it in the sense of a principle or a set of values that are very dear to you that you try and live by. And when they're threatened, you get that instinctive sense of something a bit sacrilegious or a bit deeply problematic. People have said all kinds of things. There's no wrong answer. What's your instinct about what you hold sacred? Wow, that is a uh, it's a fascinating question. And, uh, y- you know, I-, I-, I think there are some big ideas, right? So, you know, the dignity of the human person, uh, scripture, you know, scripture itself, um, my marriage takes on a sort of sacred component. Um and then, you know, there there are just, you know, things through uh, living and just experiences and sort of scars that you get that, that sort of take on a very sort of personal sort of sacred component. So I'm, you know, I think I'm... I'm pretty sensitive around and, and think, I think quite a bit about politics and, uh, and specifically the way that politics is used uh, uh, to, to affect people's emotions and the role that politics plays in, in our culture. Um, and, and then, you know, I, it's the kind of question that you just want to um, almost carry with you over the course of weeks and, and, and see uh, what kind of strikes you in that, in that kind of way. Yeah, it's fascinating. We had um, a conversation with someone called Lois Lee, who's a, an academic sociologist who works with uh, concepts of the sacred in her fieldwork. And what's what was very interesting is she didn't know what she held sacred initially because she'd only ever thought about it in relation to other people. And she also said, I'm not sure any of us really know until it's threatened. And it's only when the thing you hold sacred is under pressure that it becomes conscious. Most of the time it's a subconscious thing, which I found very interesting. I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood. I'd love to hear a bit about the particularly the formative ideas that were in the air, whether they are religious or political or philosophical. What, uh, and really to trace back, because I think some of these things show up in what we later hold sacred or we react against them. So what were the big ideas in the air of your childhood? Yeah. So my um, my grandfather was a very important person in my life. And uh, he was sort of greatest generation, served served in World War II, came back, was very civically involved. Um, I'm from an Italian family in the Rust Belt of the United States. So um, it's sort of like the manufacturing, uh, the old manufacturing hub that is now hollowed out <laughs> in the States. And so Great Lakes region, basically. Um, and so Ohio, state New York, Pennsylvania. 
uh, Michigan. So came back, was very civically involved uh, uh, from an Italian family in the Rust Belt, where it seemed like everyone growing up was Catholic, but it was sort of a Catholicism of rituals and sort of cultural influence. It was a Catholicism of, of fish fries. I, I tell people my favorite, you know, saints growing up were the ones associated with the best, you know, food. You know, it wasn't the most theologically reflective uh, engagement of faith <laughs> that, that I saw, but it still meant a great a, a great deal. Um, my, my mother, actually, when I was talking to my mother, uh, when I was writing my book, I asked her about religion when she was growing up. And she said, it was kind of like brushing your teeth in the morning. You just did it, which is, you know, not the most rousing call to faith. Um, <laughs> but but that was very much in, in the air. My grandmother prayed her rosary. And so just that sort of cultural backdrop was important. And then my interest in politics came from my grandfather before I had any interest in religion. And to the extent where it was the kind of thing where when I became a Christian at 15, I thought, well, now I need to forget about politics because sort of now I have this new thing in my life. And, you know, thankfully I had had some uh, people in my life who helped me understand that there were Christians who were not pastors and, you know, Christians that didn't go to seminary. Uh, uh, but, but that was, uh, you know, uh, attention in my life very early on. Yeah. So you became Christian faith became less cultural for you and more personal age 15. And I believe you'd call yourself a, an evangelical. Is that a, I know these labels are complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um. you, you know, so it wasn't a hyper partisan family. Um, so we weren't, uh, though, I, I say that and we were very much the kind of family that would, uh, you know, it would be too portraits on the mantle, one of the Virgin Mary and then the other of JFK, uh, you know, so maybe it was a little more partisan than uh, that I picked up on. But it was mostly in, in service. His, our, uh, My grandparents' house was a hub for the community. He, My grandfather, I believe, ran for assemblyman at, at some point, um, but never served in public office, though he did. He was head of the local sewer authority union, so he was a was a labor guy. But but it, 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 was, it was mostly expressed in this sort of, uh, my, grand, my grandfather had very strong commitments to family, but his commitment to family, instead of allowing it to sort of insulate himself, the commitment to family found expressions sort of in the broader community. Um, the commitment to family, you know, sent him, promoted a care for for others, for others' families. Um, and that was, uh, that, was a, that was important to me growing up. I'd say the other major influence in my childhood was I had a sort of inexplicable, to my mind, affinity for R&B music. And that sort of led me down this very interesting, I think, cultural exposure that a three-year-old, five-year-old, seven-year-old boy would not have typically had an Italian kid from Buffalo, New York, where, where I was, uh, watching BET, which is black entertainment television and listening to the gospel radio station in the morning, not because I was interested in the gospel part, but because that was the station I listened to every other day of the week. And, and, and that uh, civil rights were my first sort of political passion uh, before I knew anything about politics. I was interested in the civil rights movement. So that was uh, it was an interesting thread in my life as well. And then uh, politics continued to be a thread. Did you go on to, to study it or to be involved in local movements? Yeah. So I 
I am, you know, again, after a bit of thinking that, well, now I need to go to seminary and just do the most, you know, Christian thing I could think of. I decided I wanted to. So I became a Christian at, at, at what was at the time thought to be just past the apex of the of the Christian right. So um, uh, George W. Bush was just about to be reelected uh, for the second time. Um, but. Americans were starting to sour on faith. So like 2002, 2004, this was the first time you were starting to hear about rising uh, religious disaffiliation. This was the first time you were starting to hear about sort of uh, evangelicals becoming sort of the Putnam Campbell conversation about evangelicals, actually uh, the the alliance of uh, evangelicals with the Republican Party actually turning people away from faith. And so it was was an interesting moment to become a Christian because at the very time when I was most exact, Exactly. The very time when I was most excited to talk about it, you were like, wait, why are you showing up to this party when you know, we're all leaving? Um, uh, and so... And interesting from a Catholic background as well, because I think certainly in the UK, Catholicism has tend to have its political center of gravity on the left. And that had been the case in the States, but the religious right moment had complicated that narrative, hadn't it? Yeah. So that, you know, for you coming from a labor supporting... Catholic background. The tribes you're crossing there are pretty complex. Yes, yeah, it, it was a it was a very uh, a sort of complex uh, moment. And so, it, you know, when I was, I had to figure this out not just for sort of public concerns, but uh, just. Personally, the faith that I had had just come to and affirmed was being dragged through, you know, all of these public and political considerations. And so, you know, I had to figure out what I was stepping into. At the same time, I was also starting to ask all these questions just about how our politics uh, uh, were going to function. Um, so I went to, I decided I wanted to figure out what it meant to be faithful in public things, sort of what faithfulness and, and public life looked like. And so I went to DC for school. I went to George Washington University, which is kind of right in the thick of it, three blocks from State Department, three blocks from the White House. Um, and and that's what I did. I was involved with the local campus ministry and on the executive board of the college Democrats at the campus. And, you know, that was very much part of my exploration. And in my second year at George Washington uh, University, I ended up meeting uh, a young uh, U.S. senator by the name of Barack Obama in a meeting that, you know, uh, changed my life and sort of my career trajectory and in many ways my faith yeah what drew you to work with him yeah well i had heard him i'd followed his career a bit from from the time he became president of the harvard law review which was a a, a pretty pretty big story uh then the you know critical moment so he was the first african-american editor of the harvard law review and then in 2004 and you'll hear countless sort of staffers of the president refer to um, refer to this speech. In 2004, he gave the keynote address at the Democratic Party's convention where we nominated John Kerry to run in that presidential election. And it was a remarkable speech for a number of reasons. But as someone who, again, was new to my faith, to see uh, someone who shared my political convictions around civil rights, who shared my uh, sort of newly found or newly grounded 
convictions around things like poverty and immigration, to, to give a speech at the Democratic Convention where he talked about the awesome God we serve in the blue states, where he talked about um, the fact that um, we're called to be our brother's keeper was was deeply meaningful to me. And, and again, at this moment in American political and religious history, when there was a great deal of debate, particularly around the left, uh, around religious engagement at all for a young sender who many people thought wasn't qualified to give that address, who hadn't been on the national stage long enough to have the, I think, a particular kind of courage to go to that convention and give uh, a pretty explicitly religious moral address was uh, was moving and invigorating to me. Yeah. Small geeky sidebar. I believe that seeing Barack Obama on that, give that speech was part of what influenced Aaron Sorkin's kind of trajectory in the later series of the West Wing. Is that true? It is. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting uh, sort of a feedback loop because um, you could see in then in Barack Obama's 2008 campaign and even in some things that happened uh, during his time in the White House, sort of an influence of the West Wing sort of reverberating back onto that. We even had, uh, I'm going to mess up the name of it, but um, in the West Wing, they um, they had something called a block cheese day, which apparently big block of cheese, big day. Block of cheese day. And, and we actually, we actually brought it back. So we actually had a big block of cheese day wow. uh, at, or something modeled on it um, in the real White House. And so, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it speaks, I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had there about sort of our uh, how, uh, the the ways in which our politics has become influenced by and has become a form of pop culture. Um, but but yeah, that that link is absolutely there. And had you watched it before you started working in the White House, or was it happening around the same time? Uh, you know, a bit. I had. Um, I started, you know, I'd seen some episodes, but once I saw how many of my colleagues referred to the show, I was like, I better catch up. So I watched through the whole series, I think, during my during the campaign and my early time in the White House. Yeah. So talk to me about the public conversations. And let's start just with your personal experience, because as someone interested in politics, you're obviously used to a quite adversarial world. You balance on a lot of axes and certainly from UK people looking at the US it's quite unexpected for many of them to find someone who is a committed evangelical and a committed democrat um, how's that experience been it gets more interesting by the day you, you know it was it was a tremendous honor to serve in the capacity I did and and because you know because the expectations are so low in this current climate for democrats um, it actually was quite was quite freeing. I mean, had to deal with all the, you know, controversial issues and, and uh, the politics involved. Um, but there was also a freeing aspect of we were able to invite people to the White House and into conversations with the president who typically would not have had those invitations. I mean, one of the things I saw when I came into the White House was that religious engagement from the White House uh, had been guided by sort of who can and, you know, to be I think we're seeing this now in the way the current White House is engaging religious actors, religion in the White House, uh, religious outreach in the White House was guided by who um, could be of the most political benefit. And so it wasn't necessarily uh, the people who were serving most, the people who were in actual institutional places of leadership, but more who was willing to turn over sort of their their roles to political 
campaigns and who was able, uh, who was willing to make the most sort of electoral pitches to their their members. And so what I wanted to do was, because the expectation was so, we, we knew that we weren't, no matter what we did, uh, Barack Obama and his reelection was not going to be winning a majority of evangelicals, of white evangelicals. Um, and, and so uh, when we're talking about evangelical outreach, you know, one of the things uh, we want to do is it was actually quite freeing. Like we want to invite in the people who are serving in their local communities. We want to invite in uh, those running conferences that don't have anything to do with politics, but they're reaching a lot of people and maybe raising money around anti-human trafficking efforts or how the church can can support uh, public education. And so uh, it, it was a kind of a, a, a beautiful thing to use the convening power of the White House to hold conversations that were where the political expectations were actually quite low. And there were some unexpected sort of partnerships that formed out of that. But uh, uh, but most of the time, it was just about sort of recognizing the contribution, the role that evangelicals. And then, of course, in the White House, we were working with people of all different faiths and those of no faith at all. But uh, it was it was a, a pretty remarkable experience. Uh, I sort of don't want to take that positive note and pour cold water on it. But the broader sense of where the public debates are, um, I think it sort of goes without saying that we're in a particularly tribal moment and a particularly kind of gloves off moment in how people are talking to each other in public. And obviously we don't ascribe personal responsibility to you, but (laughs) for people in the UK, it does feel a bit like America has led on creating a public square where civility Mm. or kind of graciousness or human kind of humane disagreement is not... Uh, prioritized. So you've, you've been around it a lot. You've worked in it. You've had to deal with it. Where do you think that culture came from and what, if anything, might help? Yeah. So the, uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about and working on these issues. And, uh, you know, there are multiple uh, sources. So one is just technological. And so I think it's now a trope, though, you know, a, a, a true one, uh, that proliferation of various streams of media that are micro-targeted and where people can sort of self-select into them. And um, we just don't have a shared conversation anymore, which makes it very difficult then. You know, elections are basically the one time when we're all a part of the same conversation. And if you aren't talking between election cycles, then then when you're talking during elections, that can become a very fractious, very conflict-driven kind of thing. And so changes in media have been um, important changes in a political technology. And so um, politicians can and political campaigns can now reach um, deeper and more personally to individual voters than ever before. And there's a kind of manipulation that comes with that level of sophistication in political technology that is unhealthy for our politics. Uh, the capacity for big data to drive decision making that sort of on the outset. And there are all kinds of sort of rationales that say, well, this is just helping us uh, deal with the electorate as it is. But when that gets actionalized, when that gets enacted, it actually leads to uh, a political discourse that is um, detached from reality. And so, you know, it, it was always the case that politicians uh, could deliver different messages to different groups of voters. But there was 
um, there there was a measure of accountability on it in most cases, and and there was it had to hold together in some sort of way. Now you could have a political campaign that's that's reaching two entirely different voters at the same time with complete, basically complete privacy and delivering messages that in some cases could be completely contradictory. What that does to the integrity of our political process is something we're just starting to grapple with. And, and you know, and, and like I said, there's just so much that goes into this. The main thing I've been focusing on that I've learned traveling the country over the last few years is just this idea that people are going to politics to get emotional and spiritual needs met, that politics um, cannot bear, but that politicians will pretend that they are able to meet those needs if it's what voters are asking for. I think it's very easy and and all of the political incentives go towards, you know, sort of pretty sick fashion. Political incentives uh, incentivize politicians blaming the political system for the harm in our politics. And certainly we can look at things like campaign finance reform and uh, the way that we draw our congressional districts and that sort of thing. At the end of the day, the state of our politics is a reflection of the state of our souls. Like it's it's very much a reflection of what American voters, and I think that these things, like you said, are not, whether they've been exported or whether, um, whether there are sort of parallel um, sort of um, trends that are happening. Um, I, I think this is very relevant uh, here in the UK. V- voters are demanding a, a certain amount of emotional fulfillment, a, a, a sort of emotional pandering from a politicians that is is uh, is making our politics sick, and it's making our people sick. Th- that has been the, the most profound thing from my travels, which is um, I've been doing political events for a long time, just over the last couple of years. It's like clockwork during the Q&A period at the end of my events in the States, there will almost always be at least one questioner who will just start crying uh, during um, during the conversation. And it's not it's not attached to any specific policy concern. It's not that, that they're crying because they're afraid they'll lose health care or over the border enforcement policies. The Both of those are very much worth crying over. Instead, it's a certain kind of unmooring, a, a, a certain kind of um, it's it's an emotional and spiritual and psychological thing that our politics is doing to us that we need to be aware of. And that, uh, you know, my hope would be that, that, that we'd be able to put politics in its proper place. There's something about belonging in there, isn't there? It's not a very well-formed thought, but it feels like our small and local associations break down in a globalised world, whether that's, you know, your village or your faith community or even your union or your you know the the people the things that we used to belong to for life no longer frame our identity when we all move for work and the labor market corrodes those connections but the human need for belonging doesn't go away (laughs) so we look for it in these bigger things whether that's you know the growth of identity politics or nationalism but though those those longings for belonging were meant to be met locally they were meant to be met personally and relationally and therefore even in seeking to meet those needs we, we there's there is something poisonous in there there's something that is psychologically damaging because they, that that can't ever meet that need and so that sense of betrayal and disappointment and therefore anger and resentment and bitterness seems to be um a pretty visible outcome of where we've got to you know it's when you go to politics Searching for those kinds of uh, personal and emotional needs, I think 
you can you can get a sense that because you're placing so much value and import in politics that that means that you're sort of that you care about it <laughs> that 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 you're um, that you're that you're being effective because so much of your sort of emotional state of being is placing but I think we should be able to look at how on the American side, our politics has played out over the last decade, over the last several decades, and understand that that is it's not true. That, that actually, when you go to politics looking for uh, sort of emotional satisfaction, when you're going to politics looking for... It's affirmation, I think. It's to be seen. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That when you're, when you're going to politics for that kind of affirmation, it's actually taking up space from the from the more limited other centered role that 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 engagement in politics is supposed to play that actually when you're going to politics looking for whether um, whether uh, the president listens to the same music as you do or whether the president um, whether he's going to the NASCAR event or uh, going to the Jay-Z and Beyonce concert and just what uh, you know so much of our politics is right now is about these sort of signaling and these cultural cues and is the president one of us and that kind of thing and, and that is um, th- that is not just misplaced, but it misplaces other ends, more proper ends for politics. Uh, and both sides fall into this, uh, fall into this trap thinking that because that kind of affirmation, it, there, there is a certain power to it. There is a certain, um, th- th- there is something like when President Obama would release out uh, especially during the second term, sort of his Spotify playlists. And I look at them and it's the kind of music I love. And I, I, I look at these playlists and think there's no other president in the history of our country who would have a playlist, who would listen to music like this. And there is something feels good to to know that someone in that position, because it sends a message that oh, I have a place there in the, in the highest office of the land. There's a place for people like me. Um, uh, but what happens is when everyone is striving for that, when that is sort of the role that the presidency takes or when or our politics in general takes, um, that's going to provoke a reaction on the other side. And the very pain that liberals and progressives feel now with Donald Trump in the White House, we have to be able to step back and see if the only reaction to that is is to look for the day when one of our people is back in, when we're the ones being affirmed, and how we're going to send the message about whose America it is, which is you know, like like for all the liberal haranguing over Donald Trump's uh, sort of take our country back message, this take our country back has been the primary presidential campaign message of every campaign over the last, you know. However many years, that's not a that's not new to Donald Trump. It's not just a Reagan thing. Democrats have used it. You could see Barack Obama use it. Uh, we can load all kinds of meaning onto that. But that has been the that's been the the language of our politics, which is uh, we need my tribe. We we need to take our country back for people like us. And that is a vicious cycle that will require um will, will require a great amount of uh, a statesmanship and and people with civic commitments to. Uh, um, to extricate ourselves from that from that cycle. 
There's so much I could ask you. I'm going to finish with one final question, which is about particularly the religious, non-religious intersection, which we're very interested in at Theos, trying to have more productive conversations. And this, you know, this podcast is listened to by people of lots of different faith and and all kinds of variety of non-faith. It feels like one of the challenges for Theos is the narrative from the the state, which is about a particular kind of politicised religion being seen as indirect opposition to a more... Uh, secular progressivism, those being, you know, miles apart. Where do you see kind of religious, non-religious conversations happening more healthily, Mm. if anywhere? And is there anything that you've learned in your travels that would help us build those bridges? I think this whole sort of conversation is going to go through a pretty profound shakeup. There are a number of reasons for that. Um, First, it's important to understand so many, and I just learned this more and more through my time in government, so many of the conversations about sort of faith and politics and religion and politics that happens on the level of appears to happen on the level of sort of evidence-based policymaking and all these sort of government sort of buzzwords and touchstones. You don't have to dig that deep down um, to to understand the deeply emotional and experiential lens that people are bringing to these conversations. And that's important. It's important for everyone to keep in mind. It's especially important, I think, for religious people to keep in mind who are involved in these conversations um, to understand that what may sound like like uh, attacks or what may sound are actually coming from people's a lot of hurt uh, a, a lot of truly awful experiences with the church um you know uh, uh the uh sunday school teacher who wasn't very nice <laughs> um the 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 parent who rejected um the, the parent who they could never connect with because religion was too big of a a, a gap to bridge um uh, right or, or worse um but it doesn't even have to be i mean so right so that's that that's kind of it doesn't even uh, have have to be worse. It's the it's it's uh, the kids who were who felt left out just growing up because they were either too religious or not religious enough. And, and all of that filters uh, our, our politics is a reservoir for all of these various experiences and and hang ups. Why I think there's going to be a shake up. In the American context, you have the first generation of Americans coming up now uh, as adults who have grown up in an America where religion was not assumed for their life. It used to be that you learned how to be religious or you learned what religion was in America simply through like cultural osmosis. Like what, especially at elite levels, if you were going to thrive, you had to at least understand religious people and religious language. That's no longer the case, particularly in certain fields and geographic regions, just no longer, no longer the case. Um, There are some absolute downsides to that. But part of what it means is that you'll have uh, a generation coming up into leadership that just doesn't have the religious baggage that, um, especially at the personal level, that that I think sort of the baby boomers had um, that that you know played out in our politics um, and continues to uh, through the last presidential election, which amazingly had had two baby boomers. Uh, and so that that's going to be a big change. Then the other big change is this um, this reaction to the um, the conflation that we talked about. 
about the beginning of our conversation between a certain brand of Christianity and a political party where you have politicians like Cory Booker and a sort of resurgent religious left that are, I think, no longer complacent distancing themselves from religion, but are actually... And sometimes not too helpful of a way, but it's just going to be part of the part of the landscape, explicitly claiming a different kind of Christianity. And and that's going to play out in a way that, that we haven't seen in American politics for the last 30 years, where, in other words, I don't think the left is going to be as secular as people think it's going to be. And there's lots of trends in that around immigration and the changing of actually the religiosity we're seeing in London of many immigrant communities here who trend left because of uh, immigration policies and socioeconomic status, but for whom religion is a very deep, sacred part of their identity. We've got some research coming up on that, we hope. And I just want to say, you know, um, what we're what we're also what we're also seeing, and we saw this. It was Bernie Sanders, the uh, secular Jew who went to Liberty University in the last presidential campaign. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, part of what we're seeing is, I think, uh, and he certainly doesn't represent a new generation uh, in terms of age, but I think you look at Alexandria Casio Cortez, who recently won in New York. Uh, the day after she won her primary, she was writing for America Magazine a Jesuit magazine about how her Catholic faith influenced her views on criminal justice reform. Beautiful piece of writing. So I, I think regardless of their religious background and even regardless of whether they're a Democratic or Republican, I think um, I, I think we're going to see the most successful politicians of, in the next sort of generation of American policy are going to be those who are willing to move in and out of different cultural streams when that includes religion and, and and, and willing to treat people as they are um, without sort of imposing on them uh, uh, sort of the baggage of the past. I think that's what's needed in American politics right now. I think for uh, when we talk about evangelicals and um, in America, they uh, are not held in high esteem <laughs> right now. The the impulse uh, among a broad set of the electorate is going to be towards um, treating them as poorly as many people feel evangelicals have treated much of the rest of the country. I think the most successful politicians are going to be those who are, frankly, like Barack Obama, who are willing to appeal to the better angels of not just evangelicals, but of uh, our very disparate, diverse country. Michael, just before we finish, I think you've got a project coming up, which our listeners might be interested in talking about faith in the next election. Where can they look out for that? Yeah, sure. So uh, so I currently co-host uh, the Church Politics podcast, and folks can just find that on iTunes. I co-host that with Justin Gibney, who's the president of an organization called the Anne Campaign. And then in November, I'll be launching a podcast that will be associated with the Church Politics podcast called, we actually don't have a name for it yet, but we'll be looking specifically at the influence of faith in the upcoming, sad to say it's upcoming, uh, the 2020 American presidential election, which uh, faith is going to play a, a pretty big role in. Thank you so much for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our producer is Hussein Kazvani, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We're excited to announce that we will be doing our first live podcast recording in front of an audience shortly at the Church and Media Network conference on October the 18th. There are loads of other great things happening at the conference, so it'd be really wonderful to see some of you there. 
If you're enjoying the series and you think it's important that we have big questions about difference, we'd love to enlist your help to spread the word. Please think about posting a review or rating us on iTunes or any other of your favourite podcast providers. Share on social media and tell your friends. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos or come to one of our Central London events, you can connect via our website at theosthinktank.co.uk.